at the beginning of the chapter, it talks about three tribes, Benjamin, uh, Ephraim, and Manasseh, which were all tribes in the northern kingdom. And they were, uh, there's also my understanding from what I read that there's in the Greek translation of the Psalms, there was a superscription uh, written that said concerning the Assyrians. So most people assume that that was sort of passed down and that that was uh, written out uh, because it was specifically at that point in time. And certainly the circumstances and what we read of in this psalm fits uh, the description of what would have been happening at that point in time. So we're kind of jumping back uh in history from last week, 136 years, but sort of similar circumstances surrounding what was going on. Uh, but with, in this case, now the, uh, the Northern Kingdom rather than what was happening in Jerusalem in the Southern Kingdom. Likewise, this is a Psalm of Asaph, and Brian mentioned that you know, some people may believe that Asaph was was an individual, but uh, it's, it's logically it makes more sense that it was a group of writers or perhaps a family line that wrote uh, these psalms. And and uh, you know, if they uh, they wrote both these psalms, and either they wrote one of them prophetically, and or it was not the same individual, or they lived a long life, I guess. So that would have to be one or one of those but anyhow let's turn to the psalm we'll read it together and, uh, before we, we get into it so psalm 80 hear us O shepherd of israel you who lead joseph like a flock you who sit enthroned between the cherubim shine forth before ephraim benjamin and manasseh awaken your might come and save us Restore us, O God, make your shape of face shine upon us that we may be saved. O Lord God Almighty, how long will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us a source of contention to our neighbors and our enemies mock us. Restore us, O God Almighty, make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove it out, you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty seeds with its branches, cedars with its branches. It sent out its boughs to the sea, it shoot, shoots as far as the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it and the creatures of the field feed on it. Return to us, O God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine. The root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us, and we will call on your name. Restore us, O Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us, that we might be saved. So I see this uh, psalm as 
being broken or we can break it down into four parts quite conveniently. And so I'm just going to work our way through it briefly and, and talk about those three parts. The first one uh, is verses one to three, and it's a, an appeal to God. So this appear, appeal by the psalmist, first of all, is to hear, to hear us. And so I would suggest that uh, the psalmist would think that God at this point in time was not listening, was not uh, perhaps um, had blocked his ears for whatever reason. And so he's crying out, asking for God to hear him or hear, hear him who's speaking for the Israelites. And then it says, uh, or ask for his might to be awakened. So uh, that suggests that the psalmist believes that God is powerful, that he has strength and power, uh, but yet at this point in time, he's chosen to be silent. He's allowed what has happened to happen for some purpose, and but he is asking for this one to who he calls the shepherd to awaken his might and to use it against their enemies who have really ravaged them. He wants, he's, he's requesting salvation to be saved. And I think the realization here is that God is the one, the only one who's able to save them out of what is a, a terrible situation. Certainly we know from various other things, particularly history, that the Assyrians were a, a savage bunch and, and were very brutal and that this would have been a terrible a terrible situation that they were in. Huge numbers of people would have been killed, and the re remaining Israelites were scattered, uh, hiding. Uh, some had been taken uh, away, and they were certainly in need of salvation from their enemies. And then there's a request to restore us. Restore us in verse 3. In a sense, I think that, in a way, is a confession from the psalmist that the Israelites had fallen away. So I think he was suggesting not just restore us in power uh, or restore us from our enemies, but restore us to yourself. Um, and so I would suggest that there is a confession that they had turned their backs on God, and so they needed restoration. And... A familiar refrain from this psalm comes out in verse 3. For the first time, it says, Restore us, O God, make your face shine upon us, that we may be saved. You may have noticed that that comes out three times, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that shortly. So then we come to verses 4 to 7, which is a lament for the nation. And I believe Psalm 79 was very much a lament as well. Um, the first point is that God's anger, Asaph, the psalmist, realized that God's anger was understood to be against their prayers. 
Secondly, their painful existence was causing many tears. It talks about that in uh, significant terms. He says that they have the bread of tears and you have made them drink tears by the bowlful. So there was much weeping and it was a difficult situation. The situation had brought mocking from their enemies. And again, verse 7, at the end of this lament for the nation, there's this request that God should turn them, allowing his face to shine on them so that they could be saved. Then we come to verse 8 and through to verse 16. There's a little bit of a, a story told, a story of the vine, which really speaks as we're it's pretty clear, is a story of the nation of Israel. And so the, the psalmist talks about how the nation of Israel had been taken out of Egypt, that they had been carefully planted in this new land. The vine had flourished. Um, it had uh, provided shade to those around, that it had been sort of prolific, I guess. And now... They had been left unprotected uh, as a rebuke by God, and so were being ravaged by their enemies. And then in verse 17, verses 17 to 19, there's an appeal for the Davidic kingdom to be restored to the throne. And I believe that in the last couple of verses, most people would suggest that the psalmist is being spoken is speaking prophetically verse 17 let your hand rest on the man at your right hand the son of man you have raised up for yourself then we will turn away from you revive us and we will call on your name so certainly perhaps speaking of simply the kingdom here on earth to be uh, brought back they had lost their king they were living under somebody else's authority he, he certainly put, would, would be speaking of that but most people believe it's uh pointing towards that future time when the davidic kingdom would be content, continued through the lord jesus christ and again verse 19 concludes with a similar refrain that we've read in verses three and seven So there's a number of lessons that we can learn from this psalm, but there's one in particular that I wanted to focus on as I read through it, and that is it provides us with direction regarding what to do when we realize that we've drifted away from God. And I see really three points that are brought out with regards to this. The first one we need to remind ourselves of who God is. The psalmist begins right at the beginning, hear us, O shepherd, shepherd of Israel. And as we know, the shepherd's role is to pasture the flock. And we know that the shepherd has deep concern for his flock. He cares for them. He looks after them. He leads them. And there's... A need when we've fallen away to be reminded that 
that God is our shepherd. And that I think there's two sides to shepherding. There's one that the shepherd cares for the sheep, but also the flock needs to follow the shepherd's leading as they are led into green pasture and so on. The second thing we need to remind ourselves about who God is, is that he's the Holy One. And that comes out when it says in verse 1, that he sits enthroned between the cherubim. And I think it's speaking of God's holiness, but also that he wants to dwell with us. We think of the Israelites, he, he dwelt with them, and he also dwells with us, and that he wants to continue to dwell with us on an on a ongoing ba- basis. And so we need to be reminded of both his holiness, but his willingness and desire to dwell with us and uh, live with us in a, in a close relationship, in a close daily relationship. And to the extent that we allow that to happen, our relationship and, our, and we are going to flourish. And then finally, we have to realize that God is the one who has the power to save, as this psalmist realized, that we can be in pretty dire situations as, as, the, as the Israelites were in the face of the Assyrians. But there's never a place where we're too far down or too far gone for him to save us. Secondly, we need to remind ourselves of what God has done for us in the past. And it's interesting that a good portion of this psalm speaks about that. And as Christians, I think that's a a good thing for us to do anytime. But perhaps when we're feeling down, when we're feeling perhaps distant from God, it's, it's a wonderful thing to recount the blessings that we've experienced from the Lord. You know, here they speak. We we all know the, the story well of the children of Israel being led out of Egypt, the dire situation they were in, the various circumstances, the rivers, the Red Sea that they crossed, the river that they crossed, the enemies that they faced, the miraculous events as they came into the nation and were allowed to take this promised land and to flourish uh, from the Mediterranean all the way to the Euphrates. And likewise, it's something we need to be mindful of. And then finally, we need to repent and remind ourselves that we are weak and incapable of finding a solution for our problem, but that God is in the business of rescuing those who have gone astray. Certainly the psalmist realized how sinful the nation of Israel had become. And as we'll talk about in a bit, that they had really turned their face away from God. Certainly the reason that they were, as the psalmist says, were drinking tears by the bowlful wasn't necessarily, or wasn't because the Assyrians were so powerful, although they certainly were, a powerful army because God had led them to victory at times when they were often facing much 
more significant armies. But it was simply because they had been making a mockery of God in the way they were living and had turned their backs on him. So there was a need for restoration, and God is the one who is able to restore and is mighty to save. And so I think those are three things that we can remind ourselves of as we may have turned away from the Lord at some point in our life or felt even feeling distant, perhaps. I'm going to just turn, and uh, on Sunday I read this these few verses from Numbers 6, 20, 22 to 27, where Moses uh, is told by the Lord to pass along a blessing to Aaron and his sons. And again, this blessing says that, the, well, I'll just read it. It says, the Lord bless you. This is in number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. So they will put the name, my name, on the Israelites and I will bless them. And as I read this blessing, I don't think it's just sort of a magical set of words that are automatically going to bring a uh, blessing on a people, whether it's us or to the Israelites. But the last portion of it, or what it says here, it, it says, so they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. So to the extent that the priests, Aaron and his sons were speaking this blessing on the people, it was really putting God's name on the people so that the people would be mindful of God and wouldn't turn their backs on him. So there's no doubt that the psalmist was very familiar with this blessing. I'm sure he had heard it multiple times, and uh, he was very familiar with it. But it's interesting, there's a small note as each of those blessings uh, or a portion of that blessing is written in this psalm. We'll look at verse three first. It says, restore us, O God, and make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. And then in verse seven, it's interesting to note, it says, restore us, O God Almighty. And then if we go to the final one, verse 19, restore us, O Lord God Almighty. And so I think there's sort of an increase in intensity, a cry out, not just to God, but God Almighty and Lord God Almighty as we progress through this psalm. And in my understanding of the translation of the Hebrews, of, of Hebrew, of the Hebrew word for this, it's really a request to God that he would cause their faces to turn to him. So he realizes, the psalmist realizes that their faces have been turned away. And so he's asking God to turn their faces because in terms of where they're at, they 
have absolutely turned their backs on God, and he's crying out to God to have him turn their faces to him. And really, when we think about it, you know, as God turns his, God's, I don't believe God's face turns away from us, we turn our, our, our backs on him. And as we turn our faces to him, we will uh, be saved. And that's what the psalmist realizes needs to happen to his people. So I want to finish our time to, tonight by trying to draw out four practical applications from this psalm. And we've talked a little bit about them already, but I want to draw them out a little bit further. And really, in some ways, they're questions, questions that you can ask yourselves, questions that I can ask myself about um, my own quick Christian walk. And one of the things that I, the first point is, and perhaps question for us, is that verse four, it says, O Lord God Almighty, how long will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? And that's, to me, kind of intriguing. Is God's anger is smoldering against the prayers of his people. It's not against a specific sin. It's not against their waywardness specifically. It's not against idolatry, which was often the case, but it was against the prayer of the people. And we can guess what specifically about their prayer life was so displeasing to God, but we don't have specific answers, so it would be just a guess. But certainly, God was angry with their prayers. Perhaps they were praying to another God. Perhaps their prayers were not genuine. We can think of all kinds of different things. But certainly God was not pleased. And so, you know, when I was reading through this, I, was, I, I thought to myself, is God pleased with my prayer life? Certainly, this psalm would suggest that he can be displeased with our prayers. I think all of us pray regularly, but are we praying in earnest? Are we praying half-heartedly, perhaps? Are we praying in faith, or are we praying with hearts that doubt? Are we praying selfish prayers where we're far more concerned about our, ourselves and perhaps uh, things that God doesn't particularly concern himself with? Or are we pr praying more about things that God really cares about in our lives and others' lives. Do we pray like Epaphras prayed, where he wrestled in prayer for others? And rather than perhaps praying uh, for our own particular needs, how much of our prayer time is inserted on prayers of others? So just a thought there. How am I doing in my prayer life? There's lots of great prayers prayed in the New Testament and in the Old Testament that give us direction in terms of how to pray. We have certainly the Lord's Prayer with regards to that. But I think we can go get off track in our prayer life in terms of how we're praying, what we're praying for, and how sincere we are in our prayers, how 
how much faith we have in our prayers. So that's just a question for us to ask here tonight and as we go forward. So another question, or I would ask of you and perhaps myself, have you ever been fed the bread of tears? You know, we, we know that the same shepherd who Psalm 23 would say leads us through the valley of the shadow of death might be the same shepherd that leads us into a bread, the bread of tears. And certainly Bible, the Bible would suggest to us that sometimes that, that is specifically to chastise us or to discipline us, as we read in uh, Hebrews 12, for instance. But in many other cases, I'm sure when we're fed, fed the bread of tears, it's not particularly about chastisement or punishment, but God has some other reason for it. And Craig on Sunday was speaking a bit about the life of Joseph. We know that he acted righteously in many ways. He was sold into slavery despite that. He was accused wrongly accused he he languished in jail and i'm i have no doubt that joseph would have shed many tears as he went through those times of trial and we know that god god's simple purpose in that was to save the lives of many as we write, read at the end of genesis i guess it's that yeah right at the end of genesis So I, I guess the lesson for us is if we are going through difficult times, is there a particular sin in our life that we perhaps need to confess? Um, and is there a need to turn our hearts and our faces back towards the Lord? And if not, In faith, we need to realize that God is is using this for some other purpose in our lives. And perhaps he's doing something in our own life or, or allowing us to be prepared to face some other event or to help some other person in, in life going forward. So in these circumstances, we certainly need to learn to lead, lead, lean more heavily and more fully on the Lord to take us in, as we pass through such dark waters. The third point is the psalm beautifully describes God's caring hand over the children of Israel in bringing them safely out of Egypt. We see how he drove out the other nations. He allowed them to be planted, to grow, and to be blessed, to, to bless, and to uh, to be blessed, and to bless others. And as I was thinking through that, I was looking back on my own life and and seeing how God had been has been so good in so many ways, taking me through my young life as a teenager. Uh, you know that in our younger years, there's so many distractions, so many things that can draw us away from the Lord. And I see how he was with me each step of the way in terms of his provision, provision of a wife, family, a local church here, wonderful provisions from the Lord. And certainly there have been some challenging times and no doubt will be further challenging times 
that the Lord has been so faithful. And it's, I think, a wonderful thing to just be reminded of his faithfulness as we see his his guidance, even as we came to know the Lord as Savior and how he faithfully stood by us, even at times when we weren't faithful and we turned away from him, perhaps. And so a review and, and a reminder and thanksgiving to him for all his faithfulness in our lives is a wonderful thing to do. The fourth thing is that in many respects, this psalm is a, a, a psalm of corporate repentance. Certainly this psalmist, Psalmist Asaph, whoever he was, or uh, we don't know, but he was speaking corporately or for the people of Israel. And so the question is, where does corporate repentance fit into this day and age? Certainly, we, I've been to churches where every Sunday they have a time of reflection and repentance, um, often a or someone has written out a, a, a prayer of repentance and it's spoken by the congregation. And I'm not suggesting that's good or bad here. Uh, it may have its place, but is there a place for corporate repentance in the life perhaps of my family, the life of our local church? We can think of the life in, in, our, in, the, in our country perhaps. And I think it probably is. It's interesting um, to note, you know, when we we think of a repentance of a country, we certainly be talking about the Israelites. But in 1863, Abraham Lincoln instituted a day, a national day of prayer and fasting. And I'll just read the prayer that he prayed that day. He said, we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which pre preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and, and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceit deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have come too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness to God. As I read that prayer, I thought, what would God think if our prime minister today came to the realization of the sin of the people of Canada and prayed such a prayer. There's no specific clearly laid out pattern, I don't think, for corporate repentance in the Bible, but there are many examples of situations. I think Craig on Sunday spoke of Josiah, and in many ways he was repenting for the people at that point in time, and we read a bit about that. In Ezra uh, chapters 9 and 10, there's certainly corporate repentance there. Uh, he, speak, he, he reads, he, he prays a prayer in uh, chapter 9, verses 5 to 15. 
I won't go into that for the sake of time. Um, and he prayed a prayer, but then the people joined him in uh, repentance. And then it was followed by action in terms of their situation with intermarriage with the with the foreign wives that they had taken. In the New Testament, there's examples where in the book of Acts, there's a situation where those who held the name of the Lord Jesus in high honor and various believers brought their scrolls that had previously been used by them uh, for purposes of sorcery, and they burned them. And again, this was sort of a, a, a public burning by a group of people saying we're putting these things aside you've realized that they're uh, wrong and despite the cost of the value of these that they were burnt instead of being sold or given away or whatever might have happened so they were certainly showing corporate repentance so it's something i think for us to consider even as a local church or in our family situation uh, parents whatever it might be where we feel like we've perhaps had some failings where we can corporately repent to the Lord in terms of how we have been behaving and what things we might want to change. So just really to sum that up, some questions for us uh, from this passage. I think it's a, it's a wonderful psalm, as all of them have been, as, we, as you get into them and enjoy them. But how is my prayer life? Is God pleased with my prayer life? And am I following some of the principles and uh, surrounding prayer that are laid out in the Bible? If and when I'm being fed the bread of tears, I'm going through difficult times, what is my response like? Am I looking at my own life to see if there's any sin that needs to be taken care of that needs to be repented of and if there isn't these challenging times am i being drawn away from the lord as a result of them or am i being drawn to him uh, knowing that he's the one who can safeguard me and help me through these challenges am i taking time to look back on my christian life and really give thanks for the Lord's faithfulness as I've walked the walk that I've walked as I've been through challenges and he's helped me as he's responded in times of need and all the things that we've been through. It's a really wonderful thing, I think, for us to give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, his faithfulness in all that we have been through. And then finally, as we just talked about, is there any areas of repentance, even as a, a group that we need to be mindful of and, and offering up to the Lord.